You're listening to The Semi-Failed Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Hello again, and welcome to episode 23 of The Semi-Failed Writer. And I think we need to talk about something really important right now. Something major happened within these past two weeks. You know, maybe I shouldn't. It's kind of a controversial subject. I might be alienating half of my audience here. But, but it's kind of important. You know what? I'm just going to say it. The Dodgers won the World Series. I know. It's been 32 years. It felt like forever. We finally brought a championship back to L.A. We got that, and then we had the Lakers winning, and... Oh, wait a second. You thought I was going to talk about the election? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened the other day, didn't it? Um, I think most people know where I stand on that, but let's just say that... Uh, my anxiety has subsided tremendously over the past few days. That's all I'll say about that. Let's get into our main topic. As you know, there has been more of a push for Hollywood to have more diversity. And I'm not just talking about having more actors that are people of color cast in main roles. And I'm not just talking about having better storytelling that's more representative of various cultures, it's also getting more executives, more decision makers that are people of color to be able to make these decisions. And within these past few years, we've had uh, several films that have become very successful and have done a really good job of representing other cultures. You've had Crazy Rich Asians, which was celebrated by the Asian American community. Black Panther was a major hit for the African American community. And what did the Latinx get? specifically the Mexican-Americans. We got Coco, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. This was actually a recommendation by my mom. When she found out that I was doing a podcast and doing movie reviews, she made the suggestion that I talk about this movie in particular. But she was a little worried. She was thinking that, you know, it's an animated film. It's not live action, so you don't have real-life actors, you know, these bodies being able to advance the story. So she wasn't sure if I'd be able to talk about it in a certain respect, but absolutely I can. Absolutely. I can talk about this. There's so much there to talk about the music and the voice acting and the production of it. Such a colorful, colorful film. I remember the first time that I watched this, Eric and I went to go visit my family out in Texas for Thanksgiving weekend. And usually when I go and visit my family, one thing we're guaranteed to do every time is to go to the movie theater. In 2017, we went and we saw Coco, and I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. It was hilarious. It was so emotional and very, very sweet, and I thought they did a great job of celebrating the Mexican culture. So let me just get started with this, with the summary, and I promise I'm going to try to knock, knock into the microphone. I heard that in the last recording. I have no idea what I was doing, but I'm going to be more mindful of that. So here we go. Coco takes place during Dia de los Muertos, a holiday that honors and remembers friends and family who have died. Before the festivities begin, a young boy named Miguel wants to play guitar for a local talent show, even though his entire family has forbidden music at their home. Despite the rules, he goes to the mausoleum of the famous musician Ernesto de la Cruz and steals his guitar. Upon strumming it, he is transported to the land of the dead. It is a punishment for stealing from the dead, and the only way he can return to the living is to get a blessing from a deceased family member, whom he believes to be Ernesto. With the help of his perro Dante and a trickster named Hector, 
Miguel searches for Ernesto and on the way discovers that his family history may be different than what was explained to him. Coco was released in 2017, written by Matthew Aldrich and Adrian Molina. It was directed by Molina and Lee Uncrick. The film stars Anthony Gonzalez, Gal Garcia Bernal, Benjamin Bratt, Alana Ubach, and Renee Victor. Also known as, this is a beautiful lineup, a beautiful cast, like 99% Latinx right here. I hope this is the future. I want more movies like this. And they're representing all territories. You've got Peru, you've got Mexico, you've got Puerto Rico. It's wonderful. Let me go through some of these names. First, Gael Garcia Bernal. If you are an English speaker, native English speaker, you might know him as Rodrigo de Sousa from Mozart in the Jungle. Really funny comedy. He's so eccentric. He's great. I know him more from the earlier stuff, his breakthrough roles, from Y Tu Mama Tambien, Amores Peros, Motorcycle Diaries. Wonderful. Benjamin Bratt. Early on in the 90s, you might know him from Demolition Man. He was there with Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock. He played uh, a cop named Garcia. He also starred with Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality, where he was special agent Eric Matthews. And if you're more familiar with him on TV, you know him as Detective Ray Curtis in the OG Law and Order. He was there as the main cast member for several years. Alana Ubach, who plays Imelda, I gotta tell you the truth, I had no idea that she had Latin American descent in her. I had no idea that she was Puerto Rican and Mexican, so that's my fault for not knowing enough about her career. The main thing I know her from is Legally Blonde. She was one of Elle's best friends named Serena. And then when I looked further into her uh, filmography, I came across something crazy. Any of you kids that grew up in the 90s, do, do you, any of you remember Beekman's World? You know, it was a science show that came on like Saturday mornings and Beekman was this guy that would wear like this bright green jacket and he had like this electrifying, this hair that looked like it was electrically charged. She was an assistant on the very first season. She played Josie. And once I found out about that, then it was very clear to me that I do remember her in this role. I remember they have the fisheye lens and so Beekman and his assistants would just get super, super close to the screen and they have these like distorted images of their face and they'd make these very comical expressions. That's Alana Ubach. Edward James Olmos is in this film. He plays Chicharron. Of course, you got to mention Jaime Escalante. That's got to be the main thing he's done. More recently, he was Admiral Adama in Battlestar Galactica. Cheech Marin, he's in this movie. Cheech and Chong, that's all I got to say. Jaime Camille, he plays Miguel's father. I know him best as Rogelio de la Vega in Jane the Virgin. And I'm telling you, he is the best character in that show. You can argue with me all you want. I said what I said. He's absolutely the best part of that show. So hilarious, so charismatic. He is wonderful. And I know you didn't ask this, but the worst character on that show is Mateo. Yeah. There is an international crime lord in that show, Sin Rostro. She is not worse than Mateo, this five-year-old kid. Okay, enough about that. Now, when Eric was doing his film reviews with me early on, he would try to find a Toy Story 3 connection, like if any of the actors had any contribution to the film. And there's a stretch there where it didn't. But we do have one here in Coco. 
John Ratzenberger's in this film. He's only got one line, just one, but he has been in pretty much every Pixar film. Like, it's a requirement that he be in every single film, so they included him in Coco, gave him one line. So there's a connection. Toy Story 3, Coco. He was in both. Heroes and villains. I will start with our main character, which is Miguel. I never related to a character more than I did with Miguel. Because the whole conflict that goes on here is that he wants to play music. This is his passion. This is his dream. This is what's in his heart and soul. And his family forbids it. Does not even entertain the idea of letting him being exposed to music. Much less being able to play a guitar or sing or anything. And I kind of get that. I've been shielded away from negative influences growing up. And I understand that, you know, my family is doing the best they can do. They're trying to make sure that I'm kept safe and that I don't get into harm's way. But it's really extreme. I feel like there's a point where you can educate someone saying that there are some negative influences out there. And I guess when we're talking about music here, music in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's beautiful the things that you can do. You can bring people together. You can express so many emotions through it. But it's how you use the music is what's the problem. And I don't think that's what they taught Miguel. So he goes through this whole story. And there is a great lesson in there at the end. And that's, you know, Miguel will do anything for his family. He loves them dearly. He's willing to sacrifice anything, even give up his music aspirations because that's worth fighting for. And that's a great message to have, but I think something went missing here. At the end, when all is said and done, what we learn is that, oh, it was just a misunderstanding. Hector's not a bad guy after all, so okay, we'll celebrate it. We'll expose everyone to music back again. But really, another message should have been, you know, music was never the bad thing. Some good can come from your music, some bad could come from your music, but you've got to be able to tell the difference between the two. But other than that, I thought Miguel was adorable. I loved his energy at the very beginning when he talked to his great-grandma Coco. He's super talented, great singer, and um, just very likable. I don't think, even when he was defiant of his ancestors and just saying he wished he wasn't part of this family, I still found something endearing about him. There wasn't a moment where I felt annoyed about who this person was. I was with him from beginning to end through this adventure. Hector's an interesting character too. You want to write him off at the beginning because he is a trickster. He is a con artist and trying to find some way to weasel. He's trying to find a way to weasel himself into the land of the living. We don't know why at first, but he's just doing everything he can. He also takes advantage of people that he borrows stuff from. He never gives anything in return to them. So he has these negative qualities, but once you get through the entire film, you realized it's not that he is a bad individual. He's just incredibly desperate. You got to see it from his perspective. He has no idea what his family thinks of him, what his living family thinks of him. He has no idea that they see him as someone that has abandoned the family, that has been a disgrace to the, to the Rivera family. All he knows is that the people that remember him are his wife and Coco. And at some point, once they go away, he is gone too. And he needs to be able to have that one last chance to be able to see his daughter 
and then he'll be content. He just has to have that because his daughter means more to him than anything else. So it's really special to see how throughout all of the stuff that he's doing, he is trying to go after his daughter. Now, Ernesto, he is probably the worst villain that Pixar has ever had. Now, I'm trying to think through all the movies, but I don't think any of the villains have ever murdered anybody. This dude poisoned Hector, prevented him from going back to his family and leaving him, and so he kills him, steals his music so that he can make a successful career out of it. He didn't earn it. He was very mischievous in doing that. And then he was willing to kill Miguel once he found out the truth. He was willing to kill him and Hector so that he can save his reputation. That's outright disgraceful. And Eric gave me this note when he was watching the film. He was saying that with Pixar, they would try to give these antagonists an opportunity to redeem themselves. To They have something coming to them, but also... You know, maybe they can see the error of their ways and try to repent or ask for forgiveness in some way. And they didn't do that at all for Ernesto. They let him meet his demise. He gets crushed again by a bell. The people from the living now know the truth. And so they, they cancel him, basically. That's the best way I can say it. He's canceled. He deserves it, too. Another character I want to bring up is Dante. I don't know, I feel like it's worth spending a couple of minutes just talking about how great he is. Absolutely, he's just comic relief. He's this kind of despicable looking dog. He's got the tongue wagging out. He's clumsy. But he does have an arc or two where he's able to help out Miguel and his family in the Land of the Dead. And eventually he upgrades and is able to turn into a spirit animal, an alabrije. And I'll be talking about that more in a little bit. But he's adorable. It was great to have him as a sidekick to Miguel. Never hurts to have an animal. So what happened to you, man? I had a hard time finding one of the more established actors to select from for this section. But what I'm going to do is talk about the youngest actor in this film, which is Anthony Gonzalez. Not to be confused with the Anthony Gonzalez that is the former NFL player turned congressman, Anthony Gonzalez. So this young kid, Anthony, he was about, what, 12 13 years old when he was cast to be Miguel. And like I said before, he did a fantastic job. He's got an incredible voice. He's got this positive energy to him. And I was kind of expecting his star to rise exponentially in the following years since Coco was released. I mean, everybody knows about this kid now. But I looked at his filmography and noticed that he had some bit parts here and there. I don't know if that's a decision that he made or maybe Hollywood wasn't ready for him. I have no idea. However, I do want to bring up a major project that he is working on and it's going to come out sometime next year. You gamers are fully aware of this, but everybody else, maybe you're familiar with the Far Cry video game franchise. They're about to release their sixth game, Far Cry 6, sometime next year. And he is one of the main characters. He's one of the main voice actors for this game. He's going to be playing a kid named uh, Diego. Diego Castillo. His father is El Presidente Anton Castillo. El Presidente is a nickname. He's really not a president. He's more like a dictator of this fictional island nation. But basically what's happening is this tyrannical leader, Anton, is starting to teach his son Diego how to lead this nation because he's next in line. Once Anton is gone, Diego's going to have to take it up and lead this entire nation. 
And I'm guessing there might be a conflict there where, I don't know, it could go one of two ways. He could either just fully buy into this ideology that his father has and he'll be just as despicable and cruel to his people, even as a kid. Or maybe he has some other ideas and feels like he doesn't need to be that, that much of a bully. I don't know. But I'm kind of interested to see how this game goes. I haven't played any of the Far Cry games. Maybe I should just play one to get some practice and then I can get ready for Far Cry 6. But it's really exciting. Like, that's some good money there. That's a good opportunity to be a voice actor in a video game. Now for the soundtrack. I would think because I have some experience, some knowledge of music, that I could speak more confidently about this particular section. And I don't think I can. Like, I can't go into details about the history of Mexican music or anything like that. But what I will do is talk about who contributed to the soundtrack, all the people that wrote the lyrics and the instrumentation and all that stuff. And I'll talk about my favorite songs. What I'll bring up first is that as I was doing my research, I found out that they wanted, Pixar wanted Coco to be an actual musical. And what I mean by that, because there's a lot of music in here, but what I mean by that is all these characters, all these people in this film would break out into song and dance throughout the narrative. So Miguel, once he gets his dreams crushed and he's not able to be a musician, it'll just immediately break into a song talking about his feelings and how sad he is that he can't pursue whatever he wants to do. They eliminated that idea, so any of the music here, of the singing and dancing, they're all performances. They're all in front of audiences. It's not something that is um, an internalization of their feelings. I appreciated that they didn't do it that way, because you know how I feel about musicals. Another thing, I was really impressed by the singing of the actors. From what I could tell, all these voice actors did their own singing here. I had no idea that Benjamin Bratt and Gael Garcia Bernal they could sing, and I think it was pretty spot on. For the musical score, it was pretty much composed by a man named Michael Giacchino. I apologize, I didn't go through his um, list of credits. It is pretty significant. He's legitimate. A lot of the songs were written by Jermaine Franco and Adrian Molina, and then there is one song that is considered the, I don't know if I say most important, maybe most important, but the most popular out of this entire film, it's Remember Me. In Spanish, it's Recuérdame. And that was written by Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez. I brought him up not too long ago. These are the same two people that wrote Let It Go, one of the worst karaoke songs of all time. But I like Remember Me. This was a very wonderful, special song. It did win the Academy Award for Best Original Song. But to tell you the truth, I don't think that's my favorite of the songs featured in Coco. I mean, the way that they use the song was very powerful. When you have a flashback of Hector singing to his young daughter Coco, that's so sweet. When Miguel is singing it to Mama Coco so that she can remember who Hector was, that's where I started crying in the film. That really got to me, and then it just got worse afterwards when, spoiler alert, Coco dies and they put her picture on the ofrenda. I just, I, I, I couldn't handle it. It was so sad. Anyway, like I said, they use that song effectively, but I think the song in itself is not that great. I feel like this, I feel like the lyrics are simplistic. What I liked a lot more was Un Poco Loco. 
And that was a song that Miguel sang for the talent show in the Land of the Dead. And he's trying to get his ticket to go visit Ernesto at his party. And I liked it because I, I am a fan of the mariachi style. I like it when it's lively, when you've got the horns and the strings incorporated. And and I think that's why I liked it. It's more of a, a celebratory, more festive song. And I, I really needed that at that moment. That's all I have for music. Best scene, worst scene. Best scene, I just mentioned it just a second ago. It's when Miguel sings Remember Me to Mama Coco. She is about to lose her memory entirely. She's about to forget her father. And in order to restore her memory, Miguel has to sing this song. And so the entire family's there. It's, you know, they don't want him to have music. They keep forbidding it. But this is the only thing that's going to save Mama Coco. And to have her, you know, start moving her fingers slowly, you see her eyes opening up and she starts smiling. You know this registers with her and it's a very special moment to see her react that way. By the way, I don't know if any other Mexican person has said this, but Mama Coco definitely resembles my grandmother, my dad's mom. She passed away maybe uh, a year before Coco came out and we kind of thought about that too, but Anyway, I don't know if that played into this being the best scene, but that's another detail that I picked up on. The worst scene. This has to do with Abuela taking off her sandal, her shoe, smacking one of the musicians and trying to get him away from Miguel and having him come back to their home. One thing I was worried about prior to the release of Coco, I was worried that they were going to drop in lots of stereotypes about Mexican people. I was so worried that they were going to rely their humor on certain mannerisms that Mexicans have that are just cliche and outdated and I want to get rid of them. And for the most part, they didn't do that. And I was very happy that they didn't rely on that and incorporate that into the movie. But this one scene, they did. I've known a lot of people remembering as a kid, they would get hit by the chancla, by their mother. And there was always the threat that if they misbehaved or got out of line that she was going to come off and they were going to threaten to hit him with it. And when people talk about that now, they kind of joke. It's like, okay, that turned them into decent people because they were, they were disciplined and they laugh that this sandal was the thing that scared him to death. But that's something we shouldn't be laughing about anymore. Like we should be laughing about violence on kids. <laughs> I make that sound extreme, but that's kind of what it is. I'm tired of that story, that, that history about, mothers beating up their kids just I don't want that to exist anymore that needs to go away so that made me cringe when I saw that scene with the abuela and the changla best line worst line Eric gave me his best line for the film and it's actually more of an exchange when Miguel first meets his family in Land of the Dead but the main line that was the funniest is when he says that he thought the Land of the Dead was made up He's like, I thought it might have been one of those made-up things adults tell kids, like vitamins. There are probably many things that we thought our parents made up when we were kids. And I wouldn't have ever thought to say, oh, vitamins are made up. I always took those seriously. But you would say something else, like, oh, I thought, you know, like, La Leonora was made up, just to scare us, or something like that. But to point out vitamins, it's kind of left field, but it's still very funny. I have a couple of favorite lines one of them is when Miguel is about to say goodbye to Ernesto and Ernesto says, I hope you die very soon. 
And when I heard that line the first time I watched this movie, I thought it was funny because that was just a really odd way of saying, you know, I hope to see you again. I think that was what the sentiment was. But watching it again, I don't think that's what he meant. I think at this point, Ernesto knew that this wasn't his relative. He wasn't going to be able to send him back home. And I think he started to figure out that maybe Hector is Miguel's real great-great-grandfather and he's going to do anything to protect his reputation. So I think there was a little bit of truth to what he was saying, that hopefully he does die very soon. It's crazy. The other line I like was right after that, once Miguel does find out who his real great-great-grandfather is, Hector's not feeling so good about that. He doesn't feel worthy of being anybody's ancestor. And Miguel says, well, a minute ago, I thought I was related to a murderer. You're a total upgrade. So yeah, you put into perspective, like, you know, anybody is better than a murderer. I don't think, I don't think Miguel was giving Hector enough credit. It was just like the, the bare minimum. It's like, at least you're not a murderer. But I think really what Miguel meant was, you know, based on everything that I know about you, you're cool. Ernesto sucks. I'm glad that you're actually my great-great-grandfather. The worst line, I couldn't find any line in particular that threw me off. There was an expression that I had some issue with. It's the grito. It is a Mexican yell that you hear in songs. And and I'm not talking about when Miguel does it. Like, he's inexperienced. He'll figure it out and he'll he'll master the grito. He did okay. But I'm talking about when Hector does it. He does a decent job of grito, but that's not what I think of as a really good grito. They're talking about how it just comes from inside your gut and you have to put all this passion behind it and everything has to come out. And I don't think Hector did that. Like I found some clips of people doing like a really good grito. I found one that was exceptional and it sounds a little something like this. That is a grito. By the way, that came from a woman. Women can do it too. This ain't just a man's game. So that's the closest thing I have to a worse line here. True facts about Coco. I'm not going to go through all the Easter eggs that are embedded throughout the film. There's a lot of references to other Pixar films throughout this movie. So I'm going to go into some other details. What was impressive is that the guitar work in the film... You know, it would be easy to just show someone like pretending to strum and think you're making music out of it. They paid attention to detail and made sure that however they were strumming the guitar is how it actually would play out when you're playing a song. So they did a good job of shaping the fingers, shaping the chords on the fret and the way that he would pick the guitar and strum it. That's pretty accurate to how those songs should be played. In Brazil, the title of the film is not Coco. It is actually Viva. And the reason why is that Coco in Portuguese translates to poop. And that would be very confusing to an audience going to a movie and having it be thinking that it's about feces. So they had to change that. And they also had to change the name of Mama Coco. They named her Mama Ines. This is the third Pixar film to feature alcohol. This is a family-friendly movie, but it was necessary to have some tequila in this movie. This is how Hector dies. The dog, Dante, 
It was modeled after a real-life breed called the Xolodoc, X-O-L-O. That is a breed native to Mexico. It's rough-skinned, hairless, and they have uh, a tendency to lose their teeth. It's like they came out of a puppy bill or something, so that's why Dante has the, the, the tongue hanging out of his mouth, because that breed of dog loses their teeth. The town where Miguel and his family live is Santa Cecilia, and in the Catholic Church, St. Cecilia is the patron saint of music. And I should also note that that was also my patron saint when I got my confirmation at 15 years old. And I was super impressed by the bishop who knew that this was the patron saint of music, because St. Cecilia I thought was very obscure. There's not much written about her compared to other venerable figures, other saints. But I was being cool because this was the patron saint of music, and music was my thing back in the day. So thinking about it now, of course the bishop was going to know who the saints were. This is his livelihood. He has to know all this stuff. But at the time, I was still impressed. I don't know if any of you went to the theater to watch Coco, but when it was first released, do you remember watching a short film called Olaf's Frozen Adventure? So typically, when you go to a Pixar film, they always show a short film as a as a lead up to the the main feature so they had Olaf's Frozen Adventure and this was so long and I know for some people they were confused they didn't know if they were in the right in the right room like Coco's being played somewhere else my feeling when I was watching it I was like can we get on with this already I did not come here to watch Olaf I came here to watch Coco let's let's get the show going usually these films last like five to ten minutes this one lasted 22 minutes. It seemed like much longer, but it was it was unnecessarily long. But what I'm trying to get out here is I think because there were too many people complaining about it that they scrapped the short film. So in December 2017, Olaf's Frozen Adventure was no longer being played right before Coco. They just went straight to the main feature. Good for them. The original title of the film was called Dia de los Muertos. Of course, this is about Day of the Dead. However, Disney, which I believe already acquired Pixar at this time, they wanted to trademark Dia de los Muertos. They wanted to be able to take this saying, I guess, to take this title and to be able to market it, to get merchandise and every other thing you can to get money out of it. And there was a lot of backlash. Once people found out that this was something they were considering, a lot of people said, no, don't even think about this. Ultimately, they backed away from that, decided not to trademark it, decided not to name this film Dia de los Muertos. They went and stayed with Coco. I think it worked out for everybody. February 27th, 2018 is officially Coco Day in the city of Los Angeles. This was the same day that Coco was released on Blu-ray and DVD, so the two events coincided. So they did this special event at the city of Los Angeles. They... I believe gave them a key to the city. They had the filmmakers there, some of the actors, the voice actors that were part of Coco, and they did some special songs performed by local bands in LA. I think it was pretty cool that they did that here. And one more true fact, this has nothing to do with the film itself, but when I first signed on to Twitch, which was around this same time, I was trying really hard to think of a gamer tag for me. And one of the names that I was considering was Mama Coco. Because I liked the movie and that sounded really cool as, as a Twitch handle. But I thought of other names and I came up with different names as my Twitch handle until I ultimately 
decided on semi-filled writer, but just a little nugget of information for you. It doesn't matter. I just wanted to share that with you. Suspend your disbelief. This is an animated film. I know there's a lot of things that are made up. Like, how are we to know that there really is or isn't a Land of the Dead? I'm not going to nitpick all that stuff. There were a couple things that I had questions on, and I had to look it up and see what the significance of those things were. First, there is a, a word, there's a, a nickname that Hector gives Miguel, and he calls him Chamaco. Calls him Chamaco several times in the film. Now, I had to look this word up, and within Mexico and in Central America too, I believe, that is a slang term for boy or kid. So that is a real term, but it kind of confused me because in the States, I had never heard of Chamaco. I have never heard anybody referred to by that name. So I think this is more of a regional thing, and it makes sense for this movie because this this does take place in Mexico. I just had no idea that that was a slang term that was out there. Now, the alebrijes, if you remember, these are the spirit animals that can somehow go back and forth between the land of the living and the dead. And I wasn't too familiar with what those were, so I read up on it, and I discovered that the alebrijes have no real association with the Day of the Dead. This is how they got started. In the 1930s, you had an artist named Pedro Linares, got really sick, really bad fever, um, had a dream one night, and had some crazy visions. And some of those visions were some animals that had these weird appendages and arms, and they looked like really colorful monsters. And they said, alebrije, alebrije. So when he woke up from that, he was so shaken by that, he decided to turn it into art. He made these sculptures out of paper mache, I think wood as well, and he called them alebrijes. And so that's all they are. They're just art. They're still popular. You could still get them in uh, parts of Mexico where he was originally from. His family still makes those. But they're not based in any mythology, like alebrijes are not part of the, the story of the Day of the Dead. It just tells me that the filmmakers decided to use that and create characters out of it as part of Coco. That's fine. But I, I, I didn't know this. I never heard of an alebrije, so it was nice to get some clarification on that. I'm changing this last section. I mainly focused on whether or not this film could be remade, but I'm changing it. It's going to be called Remake or Sequel. So the question I'm going to ask about this film is, would this film be remade or will it be turned into a sequel? And how would they do that? So, I mean, this is definitely not going to get remade. There's no way they can remake Coco. It's good the way it is. Let's leave it at that. However, they can absolutely make sequels out of this. This was super successful. Millions of dollars were raked in because of this movie. And so they could absolutely capitalize on that and make more Coco movies. What the story would be about, I have no idea. It could be something like, you know, Miguel going back into the land of the dead Maybe he helps another family try to reconnect with someone from the dead. I don't know. I don't work for Pixar. I don't make the rules here. But um, I would be surprised if they didn't make another Coco. Because, like I said before, we need more stories like this. And, you know, write this wave of success. That is all I have for the review. And I need to go thank my mom for bringing this up as a recommendation. And... What I said in the very beginning, this was great. This was a celebration for us, the, the Latinx, the Mexican-American people, to see ourselves in this film. And because it made so much money, 
I hope executives take note of this and say, you know, there's something here. We need to have more movies like this. I think we're getting in that direction. It's just going to take some time. But if you need some help, somebody, you know, call me. I can help you out. You can reach me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifieldwriter.com. Twitch, Instagram, at semifieldwriter. Thank you so much for listening. You have an excellent two weeks, and I will talk to you again very soon. Take care.